So Money is brought to you by CNET, the site that shows how to navigate change all around us. So Money episode 1432, Julian and Kirsten Saunders, founders of Rich and Regular. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. And that led to this huge conversation and reveal that I had credit card debt and it was completely normal for me. And he said, if I had known you had had this credit card debt, I never would have dated you. Whoa. That's what led to the breakup (laughs) because, yeah, I reacted and left. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm Farnoosh Tarabi. Would you ever date somebody who had thousands and thousands of dollars in credit card debt? Well, for our guest today, that reveal led to a breakup, but soon after they reconciled and not only got married, but started a mission to help others like themselves achieve financial independence. Our guests are Julian and Kirsten Saunders. They're on a mission to bring more education about FIRE, financial independence, retire early to the black community. Together, they've paid off $200,000 in debt. They've quit their jobs and they've launched a brand called Rich and Regular to share their journey with others. They're here to talk about how that initial breakup actually led them closer. They got married, they paid off debt, they started a business. Julian and Kirsten are also our only couple on our list of next up honorees. Take a listen. Julian and Kirsten Saunders, welcome to So Money and congratulations on being one of our next up honorees. Thank you. Thank you for having us. We're excited to be here. You are called our money power couple. You're our only couple on the list. (laughs) You are the package deal as Next Advisor writes. You're married and you're the couple behind Rich and Regular, which is both a podcast and a blog where you talk about sharing finances with your partner, raising kids to have a positive relationship with money, and creating generational wealth. Um, You are changing the perception of financial independence to include more regular Black families like yourselves. This is so special and cool. I, I would love for both of you to talk a little bit about how this journey began for the two of you. How did you become this money power couple? And then starting rich and regular, all of that. Take me to the beginnings. Yeah, so there's a lot there. Uh, so I'll try to be brief, but uh, it really started the day that we met. We were like a lot of other couples that met at work. We were work wives and work husbands, and then we decided to make it a real thing. <laughs> um, it's probably the worst kept secret in the office at the time. Um, but uh, things got hot and heavy really fast, and then it flamed out. We had our very first conversation about money uh, after a vacation and a disagreement or, around how we were going to pay for it. And um, it forced us to confront a lot of really uncomfortable things. And we broke up. We didn't talk for a while, which was super odd because we worked together. So just imagine, <laughs> you know, all of those things going on at the same time. Uh, but then when we came to our senses and got back together, it was really it became a bit more of a curiosity. It's like, wow, like how come no one's talking about this? And at the time, this was like 2012, we, there weren't a lot of people Um, that we knew in our close friends and family circle that were admittedly talking about some of the challenges or discomforts that they had in talking about money with their partners. 
And we realized it was like, oh, because it's a huge taboo. <laughs> and so this is a problem. And so this is when um, we started to get creative and we happened to stumble upon uh, the financial independence movement. And there seemed to be like this bubble of people who were the opposite. Like they were totally open, uh, probably a little too open about talking about <laughs> their money and all these other details. And we would go to share it with people and it just did not really resonate with them. And so that's when the reels really started turning for us. And like, all right, this is a bit of a... Um, a marketing problem and then a bit of a storytelling problem because we knew that storytelling and uh, all of those little things really sort of helped to cut through the tension a little bit. And so that's when we decided that we would start sharing our own embarrassing and sometimes frustrating yeah. stories in a way we'll that just helps. We love a good embarrassing story. We love a good embarrassing story. <laughs> right. It, it works. <laughs> Kirsten, take me back to that first fight over the trip and the money. What was the battle over? Yeah, so back then I was a young, hot girl in Atlanta, living my best life, eating. Still a hot young girl living. (laughs) I'm a little older now, but back then I used credit cards the same way most Americans use credit cards. It was an additional uh, supplement to my income. I was living way above my pay grade, and I had amassed a huge amount of consumer debt. And so when Julian recommended this vacation, I planned to put it on my credit card and had no plan on how I was going to pay it off. I was going to continue making the minimum payments. It would get added to the stack of debt that I already had. And in his mind, we were going to go on this vacation, come back and then buckle down and have, you know, peanut butter and ramen until we could pay it off. And so I was very confused when we came back and all of the romantic grand gestures and happy hours, all of that stopped abruptly. And I was super confused about it. I thought I had done something wrong on the vacation or maybe he realized like we're not meant to be together. And so I asked him about it. And his question to me was, how are you planning to pay for all this stuff? (laughs) Because at the time we were making the same amount of money. So he knew like you clearly need to cut back in order to pay for what we just did. And I was like a credit card, duh. Like, And that led to this huge conversation and reveal that I had credit card debt and it was completely normal for me. And he said, if I had known you had had this credit card debt, I never would have dated you. Whoa. That's what led to the breakup <laughs> because yeah, I reacted and left and that was the end of the relationship. But to Julian's point, I, you know, after a couple of weeks, I was like, what's so bad about it? And that kind of started my own journey into the the next level of financial literacy, which is like understanding how expensive it is to carry that kind of debt. This is right around where I hide my face and I interject (laughs) coming next. (laughs) I think that's a really understandable impulse to be afraid of, you know, you're extrapolating, you're thinking about your future. You're like, oh my God, this person has a way different concept and relationship with money than, than I do. What ultimately gave you the confidence that you could work things out? And then later I want to ask about like your advice for someone who's in this right now, who's dating somebody and and feels like they're on very different financial wavelengths. Like how do you actually control the impulse to break up or, or, or start to judge even the other person for how they are with money? I mean, it's so emotional. Kirsten, you're talking about how you're interpreting Julian's approach to saving as like an affront, like you mm-hmm. you thought it was a like about you, and it was really about the money. And so taking the personal out of it is very difficult. But let's go back to how you both solve for this. What made you think that this was even still viable? And and how did you? What was the first step you took to to bridge the gap? 
Well, one, I I just needed to look at it, I think, pretty, pretty practically. And I knew that just in a short period of time that she was pretty good at at uh, sales and, and her ability to earn income was great. And so uh, I knew she had enough money to kind of solve for the problem. That part was simple. And even as I was getting to know her, like I knew that anytime she was kind of confronted with something that was challenging, she always found a way to solve it. And so it was really just a matter of choice. Like, did I think she was willing to apply all of that discipline uh, and skill set to kind of solving this problem? And not even as an ultimatum, because I didn't want her to do it for me. I wanted her to realize uh, that this is important uh, to me, but that she should really be doing this for herself and for a much larger reason. Like as we started thinking about and talking about some of the things that were impacting our community and what our union might represent, even in our family and in our community, we were really like going deep, probably a little too deep, too early. But we, in a very weird way, kind of sensed what was possible and felt like, all right, this is kind of bigger than us. And I think the rest of it was really just love and saying, mm -hmm. hey, like there's enough here for us to at least explore this together. Uh, and we both have something to work on, right? Like clearly it's not just her and the debt. Like I brought a lot of baggage with respect to debt and I needed to kind of get that in check. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just listening because what I'm, you know, as you're speaking, Julian, I'm hearing the, the advice, right? The big picture for everybody is to root and anchor the relationship in something beyond money. Like it's not just about money. It's about what do you want to what do you want your relationship to represent? What are your goals? What is the legacy you want to live? What are like, what is your future? And getting on that common ground is often the first step because the reality is a lot of couples come to the relationship with a whole different bag of financial issues. And maybe we could talk about that a little bit. Like how are your upbringings different where you arrive now in this relationship with, with these different, uh, initially different expectations and understandings of money? Yeah, we always say my upbringing was more like the Cosby show and Julian's was more like good times, meaning I grew up in a standard kind of middle class family, two parent household. And he grew up. Cosby's were rich. I don't know. They were. Yeah, yeah we were not. The, to be clear, I'm not a fan of the. We're more like family matters. Like I was more of a Laura Winslow than, than a Rudy. But uh, Julian grew up a child of an immigrant single mom in Brooklyn in the 80s. So very different environments. I was in Atlanta in the 80s. And Atlanta is known for being a place where families, Black families can come build wealth. We had Black government officials. We hosted the Olympics. Like it was very upwardly mobile. And so what I saw from my parents who were both employed in corporate jobs, salaried employees, was them using money as uh, a tool to build a greater quality of life. It's how we got to visit our cousins, how we got to bring friends on vacations. And so I just kind of extended that. What I had removed was how long they had been working, what they already had established, the fact that it was two of them and not just me and my you know, entry-level paycheck. So I missed some assumptions in there, but I was just kind of replaying what I saw and when Julian, to, to your point, when he said something about it, it felt like an attack on my character. It didn't feel like you're just overspending and being irresponsible. It's that shouldn't be important to you because maintaining this credit score or this you know, debt balance is more important than that. And so I couldn't hear that. How about you, Julian? Yeah, I think the word that was typically used to define what I was going through was like scarcity mindset, right? I grew up pretty much on the brink of, of being poor. Um, I, I was always of the belief that money was hard to come by. And when it did come, it didn't last long. 
Uh, and so anytime, it wasn't even really just her, but anytime I would see people uh, spending money uh, loosely, it, it sort of felt like it was flippant or wasteful, whereas if they didn't appreciate how hard other people had to work for these kinds of things. Uh, and so I, I, I just immediately, it just triggered kind of like a sense of incompatibility. Like there's no way this is going to work. Now, on top of that, uh, my previous relationship had, had, you know, kind of fell apart because of financial issues. It was a lot of bad things happening there. And so in addition to these beliefs. Like I also had like very recent experience where I was like, all right, this is a huge red flag. In fact, I mean, I was so convinced. I was like, thank you for, for revealing this so early, as opposed to us sort of going further down the road and us really kind of intertwining our lives. And so it was, it was deep for me. And I'll be honest, even now, I mean, 10 years later, like I still have moments where, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, paying attention to the nitty gritty details, you know, I mean, and again, call it inflation fares, call it, <laughs> you know, old habits dying hard. But um, some of those things I think um, I've learned can create friction and um, kind of lead to unhappiness. And so we, we spend much more time now uh, finding a balance between the two where we obviously need to make sure that we're enjoying and creating a good quality of life for ourselves, but also for our son. And so you got back together and it wasn't even just about building wealth. It, you really, you know, you're on, you're in the fire community. You want to bring fire to the black community. Tell us about the launch of Rich and Regular and what the uh, idea was behind that. And are you still working in your, I'm using quotes like day jobs or have you retired? Like, tell us where you're at financially. Yeah. So we launched the blog in uh, 2017 uh, and we called it Rich and Regular for a variety of reasons, but uh, primarily is because we realized that when most people thought about being rich, it was kind of in tandem with being rich and famous. They didn't really understand the idea of the millionaire next door. And for sure, there really weren't a lot of uh, visual examples of a black millionaire next door. And that's important because people need to know that, hey, these people do exist. Uh, this is something that is possible for you. And we kind of realized that that's what we were kind of pacing towards. Uh, and so when we found the fire community, um, there was not at the time a lot of people that looked like us. And uh, we started to realize, oh, well, this is kind of part of the problem. This is why so many of the people that we've tried to share this way of life or some of these approaches with can't wrap their heads around it because to them, the reward is not to go live uh, in a camper in Vermont. They don't know that, that, that that's not desirable for them. They can't envision that uh, for themselves. And so they need um, more relatable examples. And we felt like who we were at that time in Atlanta and plus our skill sets in terms of being marketers uh, and, and just generally creative people, it felt like this is something that we should uh, consider doing just to see what happens. And uh, we were right. It was like, oh, wow, people do want to talk about these things, but they don't know where to start or, uh, or I should say, and they incorporate some of these other issues um, that are very, very important to them. And that's really where we found uh, kind of our, uh, our mark, which is to say, you know, we can't talk about money without talking about work. And a lot of the challenges that so many of people, especially people of color, are experiencing at work are in direct conflict with their abilities to achieve some of their financial goals. And so we started telling those kinds of stories on our blog and on our podcast and some of our video content. And basically, you used a different use case to make the case for why people should be adopting the principles of the FIRE community. Yeah, you say it's not it's not impossible, but it is harder um, for some of the reasons you outlined, whether that's discrimination bias at work and just, you know, 
everywhere, whether it's like trying to buy a house, trying to get access to resources. There are a lot of headwinds that are unique and exclusive to people of color. You bring up these case studies, but then what are the, I don't want to say like solutions, but what are the workarounds, right? Like how do you combat systemic racism on your journey to fire? Yeah, there's there's no real way to completely avoid it, but to yeah. your point, it's about mitigating the risks and, and controlling for the variables that can disrupt your financial plan. So for us, it's focusing on income. We know that in corporate environments, our income is largely capped. If you look at CEOs, VPs, even director levels at companies, it's a small percentage of people that look like us. And so it was being really creative. And in our book, we outline an approach called the 15-year career, which is kind of working a traditional job, but in tandem, building the skills, investing along the way, and thinking of an exit plan way earlier than you think you need to. A lot of people just kind of passively go through the job and to Julian's point, wait for the big reward, which is the promotion or the high visibility project. But really the reward is being able to walk away at any point when things get toxic, when you're passed up again, when you're no longer given the same freedoms and liberties as some of your colleagues. And so what we teach people how to do is use a job for what it's worth as a means to an end, enjoy it, pick up the skills, gain from the things that corporate America is really good at, like training their employees and, and giving them opportunities to apply that knowledge in real world scenarios. But then on the side, be working on multiple streams of income. Maybe it's passive investing through real estate. Maybe it's creating a content, being an online content creator. Maybe it's just a side hustle that happens seasonally. Whatever it is, you need to be building that on the side so that you lessen your dependency on the institutions that have historically failed us. You also have a very flexible relationship with FIRE, yeah. which I like. As the community has grown, so has the interpretation of FIRE and the, the, the goal of FIRE. Tell us how you are experiencing FIRE. Um, I have read about that you're living on a lean FIRE lifestyle. Tell us what that is and, and how uh, it's been working out. Yeah, I actually wouldn't uh, consider ourselves. Yeah, I don't uh, think we're lean. Fire. Yeah, lean fire at all. But but I will say this: like there, there's a lot of flexibility um, that that you can tap into when you don't have to worry about funding your retirement. Uh, and so above nothing else, right? If you know that you have enough and that that money is going to compound over a certain period of time, um, you can pull back. You can take a break, which is something that we think working parents, uh, regardless of whether or not they know what financial independence is or if they desire to achieve it. Um, can benefit from just being able to just take a break, sit back and say, all right, I'm going to use this time to recharge or I'm going to use this time to pivot from one career to another or one industry to another. Or I'm going to use this time to invest in myself and invest in an idea uh, that I might be able to use to earn future income. And so right now we are in a very flexible position where we our retirement is essentially funded. Um, much of the work that we do right now is work that is is meaningful to us. It's creative work. It's purposeful work. Uh, and we earn more than enough income uh, through that. Um, the other element that I think makes us a bit, um, I don't want to say unique, but is that like we're very social justice and community focused. And um, especially as of late, like one of the things that we've really been harping on is just the importance of solving what we call thousand dollar problems. I think one of the things that working professionals, especially the high achievers that we know, just obsess about is like they think big all the mm -hmm. time. Like if you tell them you need to start a business, 
they push back because they think you're asking them to create the next meta or the next Google. And I was like, you can solve some very simple problems and fill the gap enough to fund, let's say, a Roth IRA and then call it a day. Uh, and very similarly, when it comes to social justice issues, it seems like there's just so much negativity in the world that we've forgotten that there are still people who don't have enough food to eat. Like simple things like hunger, still a thing, right? And I, I, as someone that grew up in the 80s, I remember it kind of dominating the headlines a little bit more, and it's still an issue today. And so uh, we do little things like, you know, if we earn money, we also make sure to uh, to do our part to kind of support organizations that are at the forefront of doing that work. And I think that's that's important because it, it just is energizing and it's fulfilling. And I think, again, going back to what we know a lot of working professionals are dealing with, like it, there's a gap there, there's a fulfillment gap, there's an energy gap, all of those things. And I think giving back, especially if you're doing it through doing creative and meaningful work, is one of those things that just kind of fills the cup in a way that, I guess, non-fulfilling work does. Yeah. I mean, there's studies that prove it, that even just buying your friend a $5 latte brings, it's like the it's measurable not, joy. Measurable. Yeah. 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 I think a lot of the flexibility that we're seeing in the fire community now comes from this idea that previously there were a lot of people who assumed that there were safe assumptions. A safe assumption would be you can live off the same amount of money for the rest of your life never changing. And when you come from a marginalized community or just a diverse background in general, you recognize that there that's not a safe assumption for you. There will be years where you are caring for an elderly parent or you're not able to work or the roof caved in for whatever reason. And in those years, you need flexibility. So you need to build that into your approach as well. It's not something like assuming a perfect outcome is just not something we were trained to do. That's not something that we've seen role model for us. In a lot of cases, even access to these asset classes don't go back two generations. And so what you're seeing is a creative approach from people who don't have the same safety in their assumptions, I'm using air quotes, safety in their assumptions to come up with a financial plan. And when you acknowledge that there are things that come up, when you acknowledge black tax and the emotional calculus of having to care for multiple generations, you come up with a different approach that works for you and you're actually committed to trying it because you know like perfection isn't the goal. So our goal is really just to, again, show a more sustainable way for communities of color and, and other people to, to show like it's possible, but you have to kind of get rid of these kind of old school rules of thumb and, and, and safe assumptions in order to want to keep doing it, right? Imagine if you thought your weight was supposed to stay the same every single year of your life. It's like, that's not real. Bodies change, financial situations right. change, so. And, and then there are just some things that are flat out wrong, and but we buy into these myths, whether, Correct. and this is everybody, we're all, we're all like, you know, victims of this. What are some of the, um, the myths that you want your audience to like recognize and get over because the sooner they do, the quicker they can start to really live their, their fullest life. Uh, I think one of the, you know, I don't know that I categorize them as myths, but I'll, I'll throw it out there is beliefs. Beliefs. Okay. But is it, or assumptions, but like yeah. the approach that people take when it comes to saving rate, um, which is to say like we, we buy into, let's say this notion of this general rule of thumb of 10 to 15%, but we fail to, factor in that that's requiring a consistent saving of 10 to 15 percent assuming you are willing 
able, earning just as much money. Like, and, and there are just very few examples of that, especially in our community. And so what we're trying to encourage people to do is to take advantage of periods of high income when they're here, because they are not going to last forever. And there's very little evidence to suggest uh, that for the vast majority of people, they can do that, put it on autopilot, set it and forget it. If you can, congratulations, and I hope it stays that way for you. But for the vast majority of people that we know, and certainly in our community, they're not really able to do that. Um, and again, this is where it um, it intersects with work and let's say diversity initiatives and all of those things. Like you are assuming employability. In some cases, you are assuming upward mobility for a 30 to 40 year horizon. And uh, for a lot of people that just does not quite pan out. They end up with underfunded retirement funds. And so we're really you know, encouraging people to say, hey, I know you were totally looking forward to balling out for the next five years because you got that big job. But just consider this. Let's look at the data a little bit and just imagine like how different your life may be 10 years from now uh, if you were to reevaluate what you consider to be a high savings rate. So you should be aiming more so like in the 20s if you can. And if you can't, then we need to be having much more conversations about income and not budgeting or trying to save. Yeah, I have so many of these. But to, to piggyback on on what Julian is saying, I think there's also the belief that you have to wait uh, month, every paycheck to save 15% versus just like front loading it and maybe going aggressive for two or three months. And by the end of the year, like you have the same amount of money instead of spreading it across 12 months. So just getting out of the, the cadence of a biweekly paycheck when you're thinking about your financial plan is helpful. There's a belief that when I say income, I mean wages. So people tend to conflate the two and they think that their income is capped at whatever somebody is willing to give them versus your income being the amount that you decide that you're going to make this year. That can be inclusive of wages, inclusive of side hustles, inclusive of birthday money, Christmas money. It can be whatever number you decide. That's another prevailing belief. There are beliefs around uh, how old you have to be to learn new skills. So there's a lot of beliefs that people are too old to learn different things or try different things, or you're too young to try different things. A lot of ageism that is internalized in, in our messages about money. And it's, it's, it's basically all the isms. Like <laughs> you're not, you are not spared of any isms, regardless of what your, your racial makeup or, or uh, gender demographic is whether it is nepotism, ageism, racism, sexism, capitalism, whatever it is, there's going to be a version of beliefs that come with that. And you kind of have to ask yourself, what's the cost of not thinking counterculturally if what you're doing isn't getting the result that you want? I love that. Do you, do you also agree that there's just too much shame running around people feeling, being made to feel guilty or wrong for not following certain rules I'm going to do an episode on this because I just think it's fascinating and I don't think it's getting any better. Like the, we think we're so woke. We think we're so connected and inclusive and engaged as a financial community broadly. And yet there's still people out there that are not flexible. They are not flexible. They are like, you have to do it this way. And if you don't, you're a bad person. You're wrong. You're this and that. I mean, that's part of it too. It's very easy to fall into that trap of feeling less than because you're not doing it the way others are preaching. It's one of those, we were talking about this last night. We're trying to figure out if there was a decision tree around people who decide to share their income and kind of use that as like a marketing tactic or their investment returns 
versus those that don't and just focus on teaching and storytelling. It's interesting because shame works as a motivator in some people. Their chemical well, makeup. I know. That. I know. I know. <laughs> and there are other people where shame is completely debilitating and it prevents them from moving forward. And I, I, I don't have an answer. I, I do think that the tone of personal finance has typically been very shame oriented, very like, if you're not doing this, you're not smart. What's wrong done. with you? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Or you're, you're problematic or you're this or that. Or the problem. Yeah. Yeah. And we tend to avoid labels because nobody is just one thing. Like we're all different things in different moments. And it goes back to being curious about like what led somebody to have that reaction in that moment, what led them to be, to draw that conclusion. If you care, the other solution is to just avoid anything that makes you feel like you can't move forward. Right. I think there is a misunderstanding about what a safe space is in personal finance. A safe space doesn't mean you're never emotionally uncomfortable. You will be emotionally uncomfortable as you confront all of this baggage, as we've called it. But it doesn't mean that uh, the, the space isn't still safe. I think where we've gone is like anything that makes anybody uncomfortable in the least is no longer safe and no longer uh, accessible to a lot of people. And it's like, well, some of this work is uncomfortable. So we have to get used to that. It's, it's just hard because a lot of it is taking place on social media and that doesn't allow for the nuance that we're having in this conversation. Yeah. So I don't know. I, th I think the answer is to kind of balance where you're getting your advice and, and role models from. Don't just be a Twitter scholar <laughs> or a YouTube scholar? Well, I'd love to end on the future. And as you think about your son growing up and what his financial narrative might end up becoming, what are your hopes for him? And, and how are you planning to create generational wealth? Mm -hmm. uh, advice for everybody else listening, how we can do that as well. Well, I think some of the, the the good news is the fundamentals of personal finance are investing are still very much relevant, right? And so time is obviously the greatest um, ingredient that we uh, can offer him. And so things like starting an account for him uh, so that if he happens to earn income to Kirsten's point at an early age, we can just go ahead and set that aside so that money is growing with him. Um, the other thing uh, that I would really like to do, and I think we are doing that uh, just by the way that we live our lives is is embracing self-employment. And, and, and I'm learning to, to love that word a little bit more than entrepreneurship, because I've learned that entrepreneurship is True. part of what makes people think so big. Yeah. Uh, and even self-employment, I think some people are that way, but it's like just earning income on your own. Like I want him to continue to uh, find ways and we'll do our part to nurture his intellect and curiosity to say, hey, that's a great idea. I wonder if we can sell that. I wonder if we can earn income from that. Uh, that way he just sort of gets the wheels turning and he understands how to kind of bring ideas to life at a very early age. Uh, so that's one of the things that we're, or a couple of the things that we're doing uh, now. And um, we'll see, ask me again in about 15 years. We'll see, we'll see how it works out. <laughs> Well, you're on an incredible track, and we're so grateful for um, being able to spend some time with the both of you, Julian and Kirsten Saunders, rich and regular, but not so regular. You're fabulous. <laughs> Thank you again. Thank you. Thank Thanks you. for having us. 
Thanks so much to Julian and Kirsten Saunders. For more, check out Rich and Regular, all the links in our show notes. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. And I hope your day is so money. Money.